0: Breaking news from the Vatican. There's going to be some kind of symposium now on the formation of priests. Fundamental question for the future of the church. Multiple sources are quoting the fact that the issue of priestly celibacy, quote, must be addressed on the horizon of vocations. Clericalism, quote, a danger for both priests and the faithful. identifies the priesthood with power and not with service. Brother Martin Navarro, Oblates of St. Augustine, joins the RTF podcast. Brother Martin, when you become a priest, do you want me to identify you with power or with service? <laughs> Hopefully with,
1: with love and self sacrifice and being an altar Christus. I would hope that what, anybody who sees me knows me, sees another Christ. I mean, that's what a priest is supposed to be. Uh, neither one who uh, lords it over his, his neighbor, lords it over somebody, nor someone who's easily walked all over and is just a social justice warrior. Uh, but is truly another Christ.
0: Is it really the definition of clericalism, though, identifying a priest with power?
1: I mean, like... I mean, when you have authority, you have responsibility. Priests, obviously... I mean, fathers of families have power, you know? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I guess maybe... I, it, dep- it depends on what your image of, of priests. Or I guess if you grow up with a very angry priest, um, who's constantly yelling, maybe, um, or if you are, your first encounter with a priest is trying to get married and there's a canon lawyer standing in your way, uh, maybe. Um, but for me personally, growing up, I never attributed power to priests and almost the opposite. I, I saw them as just kind of people that really didn't have any influence over my life at all.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe that's something they need. Maybe they need to up the, uh, the power, just a little bit. Um, <laughs> he, I mean, you do have the power to call down Almighty God under the altar. I mean, that's, that's pretty powerful. I mean, all I have, I have the power to spank my kids. I mean, that's like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. we put those side by side. Uh,
1: I think Karen, I think we know Karen's from the parishes these days, no?
0: Yeah, no, Karen has all the power at the church, and she also has the power to call CPS on me for admitting to spanking <laughs> my kids. So I guess she has all the power over both of us. Um, Brother Martin Navarro. we're going to be talking about priestly celibacy today, and uh apparently Cardinal ulet is saying that uh celibacy is going to be discussed. There's a quote. He says, it is necessary to understand that the real question concerns the vocation is formation. If one is called by God, he also receives the gifts to live this call, and formation makes these gifts aware and manifest, but he says... Celibacy must be addressed on the horizon of vocation. Why do they always phrase these sentences in such awkward ways? It must be addressed (laughs) on the horizon of vocation. What the heck does that even mean on the horizon?
1: Who who, who thinks like that? Who talks like that on a daily? Modernists.
0: Modernists talk like that. (laughs) Modernists talk (laughs) like that. He says it's not going to be central. Do you believe him? Is it just going to be a
1: footnote? It's always going It's always just a footnote. It's always just a footnote. 351. Um, you know, somewhere it's smuggled in um, so is to be to be drawn up later. The ambiguity. The time bomb, so to speak.
0: That's what these modernists love. They love the back door. They love to back door everything in. They love everything about the back door. And I absolutely mean a double entendre when I say that.
1: <laughs> um, the very fact that. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just saying. Um. I mean, the very fact that they're always manipulative and uh, trying to create some sort of program way, strategy to, to get their way, I mean, shows you that, I mean, why, why can't they just be up, up front if it's, if it's so good for the church? Why can't they just spell it out for us?
0: Is this what we need, another symposium? Is this symposium going to solve the vocation crisis in the church today? Uh, of course
1: not. It says that Pope not.
0: Francis himself will be leading this three-day symposium. What do you think he's going to say that is going to be so earth-shattering that's going to solve the, the shortage of priests?
1: I think Father Z wrote an article published uh, a few days ago, or, I mean, on his blog, um, almost criticizing the, the Holy Father because the Holy Father, seems, every time he mentions priests, he's always bashing priests, always putting down priests. I mean, the only inspirational thing you ever hear a priest say is he was our Holy Father's first... Uh, Holy Thursday mass, um, when he was just, um, raised to the papacy was the pastor needs to smell like his sheep. And you hear that people, um, quoting Pope Francis, that particular phrase constantly. And that's the last one. That's like the only one, Mm -hmm. um, in regards to how, how priests should be, because since then really he's, he's always been negative towards priests. So, um, in a symposium, particularly about how priests, engage in ministry how they live their lives i can't imagine there being a whole bunch of uplifting spiritual uh, phrases that will impress themselves on the hearts of priests Mm -hmm. to then reflect upon and and you know meditate upon and hopefully affect change in their ministries
0: i'll be the first to say that it is extremely
1: improper
0: and disordered that um myself especially at least you're a cleric but myself to be bashing priests so much, and I don't take any pleasure in doing it, but in my opinion, we live in extraordinary times, and in almost any prior generation, we would have had priests out there correcting their fellow priests, and yet there seems to be a dearth of that happening, so um, I agree with you, and I agree with what Father Z said. We need positive... Imagery of priests. We, we're not going to get positive imagery of priests from Hollywood, from the popular culture, the media, or any such thing. And um, oh, here's another quote. This is really foreboding, Brother Martin Navarro. Oblates of St. Augustine. Soon to be homeless. Need $100,000. Cardinal Ulate says that the priesthood needs pastoral updating, taking into account ecumenical questions and those posed by cultural movements that question the role of women in the church okay so is everything on the table you got ecumenical questions you got women in the church you got celibacy it's all it's all on the chopping block now over these 3 days
1: it's, it seems as if every time there's a symposium every time there's a, uh, a synod or whatever everything's always on the table from homosexuality homosexual unions uh to women deacons to women you know clergy all that kind of stuff even when if, if if the subject matter is completely if it's something else like the amazon um for instance um it seems like it, i don't know it's just their modus operandi to just mention everything all at once um and and give a short a short two sentence phrase uh about it but um, yeah
0: this is really scary. I'm doing, I'm doing keyword searches in case you can hear my, uh, my <laughs> ding in the background. I'm looking for the words homo or same-sex, <laughs> uh, not seeing anything, um, which means they're definitely going to backdoor that one into the uh, footnotes, if you will. But um, let's just take these issues one by one. First of all, let's go back to celibacy. You've taken a vow of celibacy, mm. um, or at least commitment, and... Um, when you become ordained, you're, I mean, you're going to take a permanent, forever vow of
1: celibacy. Why? Why do that? That's a loaded question. And In particular, why the church asks it, asks it of, of its ministers, or why would someone be moved to make such a decision for their life?
0: Well, I think kind of both, but let's start with the grander question of why is it a discipline of the Western right anyway, and, um, and... You know, what can you tell us about, I mean, for, there, are, there are a bunch of Catholics who are listening right now who may not be aware mm-hmm. of the fact that there are a bunch of married priests running around there, even in the yep. Western Rite. Yep. And, uh, yeah, and how, do we, how are we going to reconcile that? Why are, some, why are most celibate, but then there are some that aren't? And what's the whole deal with that? And then we'll get to you personally.
1: Okay. <laughs> so it's a, di- it's a discipline in the church, not a dogma, but a discipline that um, has roots in apostolic times. I mean, we read in, in the letters of St. Paul. Um, about an undivided heart and the church in it, her wisdom has deemed it wise to elect from those with the grace of celibacy to be its ministers um, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, practically speaking, um, a, a priest is, is, is radically available uh, to be a father uh, to his parishioners, to to his, his flock, to be a, a real true shepherd. They have the freedom to lay down their lives literally um again, i have i have several images in my mind of priests during the uh, the Gristeto war or during uh, the Spanish civil war uh Maximilian Kolbe they have the freedom i mean i think many of us know the story of, of Maximilian Kolbe there is his stories that in in the concentration camp um there there was a father of a family who was elected to to go to the gas chamber to be to be executed and Maximilian father Maximilian Kolbe uh, stood up in his place and said i'll, I'll go instead of him and he switched himself out. Why? Because this man was a father of a family and, and Maximilian Kolbe was not. And he chose to, to lay down his life for his friend. Uh, okay. So it's, it's kind of... Radically
0: available. I'm sorry. I have to jump in, Brother Martin. Go ahead. <laughs> because what have we seen with these little, weak, sniveling, scared, Fauci priests for the last year? They've been radically unavailable. Right. They've been available to their Twitch subscribers. In case you don't know what Twitch is, that's some juvenile app where you can watch priests play video games, apparently. Because during the lockdowns, these people have spent time on Twitter playing video games, not anointing the sick and dying, not marrying or baptizing. So they've been radically unavailable. Okay, so they're celibates who are unavailable. Sorry, I just... I mean, that's just such a juxtaposition, and it's maddening. It's absolutely yeah. maddening. It's only the traditional priests, the ones wearing cassocks, even the ones in irregular canonical status, I'll add, who are the ones who will respond to hospital calls and walk the halls of hospitals today. The rest of them are sissy, weak, uh, well, I, I can't. Uh, they're just effeminate. I'm trying not to say really bad words because I just said it's disordered for me to say these things anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and they disguise themselves with being obedient because there, it's their bishops that, that told them not to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is—it's it, antithetical to what a priest ought to be, um, who ontologically is. I mean, even in the old uh, moral theology textbooks, uh, under the sections of, of confession, when you know, what what is a priest to do? Uh, or actually, that there's a moral obligation for priests to. Um, administer the last rites to those in grave danger of death. I mean, especially of COVID, uh, of something along those lines. Um, and usually, that phrase, um, that acknowledgement of, of that responsibility, is followed by our Lord toward Himself: "Greater love no man has in this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends." Like this is the ultimate s- sacrifice a priest signs up for. It isn't. Oh, we're going to care for our health. Our priests are elderly. All that kind of stuff. It's like no. I mean, this is game time. This is. I mean well in which case why do we have military chaplains who are on the battlefields with uh with with soldiers if not to to literally give them the last price as as they're literally dying mm-hmm. um, if it doesn't make sense for uh, priests to go into hospitals when 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 people are dying in during a pandemic, neither does it uh, make sense to have a military chaplaincy really
0: and and um I mean don't they wear the stole as a representation of the blood that they would spill especially being martyred and beheaded and, and all I mean, isn't that like one of the symbols of the stole or did I just make that up? <laughs> I, <laughs> I might have heard made that, that up. One. <laughs> you haven't heard that one? I mean
1: it's it's definitely it's, well it's 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 a symbol of, of of the priest and the priest by definition is one who offers sacrifice. And in the in the Catholic understanding of, of what is being sacrificed, the priest is a priest victim. It's in himself. Mm-hmm. So I guess by sure, by, by affiliation, the the stole by being represented by being a representation is a symbol of, of priesthood. All right, There's so, so be,
0: beyond the practical of being radically available to the laity, why else has this been a long-standing apostolic tradition of the
1: Roman Catholic Church celibacy? Because a priest is the man who is most conformed to Jesus Christ. He is he's another, another Christ, Christ himself, Alter Christus, Deep Side Christus. Um, and Christ himself was celibate. Why? Because he was madly in love with his father. Um his heart was completely and totally devoted to his father and to the the mission that his father sent him to do um, sometimes you say people or the a, a priest is is married to the church. I find that kind of too vague and too abstract um to really affect my heart sure i mean you have you have children and all that kind of stuff, but um particularly as a man i mean as a young man growing growing up like in my twenties or whatever I, I had a dream um and I never really cared so much about marriage until there was one woman that walked into my life that kind of put everything on hold and said, Whoa, well, you know, maybe I need to, uh, it, it, you know, her coming into my life was, was the, was something that made me think about actually setting it down. It gave me a new dream, so to speak. Um, and so I guess in that sense, uh, a priest is celibate to give himself and totally to his bride, the church, um, and that he has no other dream, no other life besides, um, giving his life to, to his flock. Um, but it's always in the context of love. It's, it's not in the context of, um, a job, a profession, um, that kind of stuff, something that can give you give you a paycheck. Um, it's relational. It's 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 familial. It's it's about a family. It's about love. It's about well, uh, trinitarian love in particular. Um, but I think when all these questions about celibacy um, are raised, I think that's 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 at the heart of it. Priests priests have fallen out of love, or at least these 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 prelates they've they've fallen out of out of love with with the one person they're supposed to be. Uh, madly in love with and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Um that's why I don't I particularly don't understand why it's 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 always a question. I mean, for me it's no question. Why do I want to be celibate because I'm in love?
0: I have a theory I want to run by you. I suspect and again, this is just Mike musings, okay? Mike's musings. Hey, that'd be a good that'd be a good website. Mike's, Mike's musings. <laughs> Mike's musings. Um I think that one of the re- main reasons why they are claiming that they're going to need to lift this discipline, which they have every right to do, I think, because it's just a discipline, it's not a dogma, as you said. I think the reason why they want married priests is because they immediately want to shift into having gay married priests. Yeah. And I think, I think ultimately this is a backdoor into that. And um, I, I completely see that too. And I think this is why we really have to... There's one reason why we have to hold the line, because there are a lot of estimates out there in terms of the percentages of disorder within the priesthood. We know it's more than zero, and we know it's less than 100. But as I survey the landscape, Brother Martin, and you don't have to respond to this because this is just my personal opinion... I don't think that I can walk into most establishment parishes in the United States and not find somebody who's disordered running around in what they may consider to be a costume. And and within the Episcopate, I think the number is more than 50%. Others have put it at a much higher rate. I've met more than a few bishops in my lifetime and, um, well let's just say that my anecdotal experience has been that it's higher than half. So they would love nothing more than to, than to get these, you know, gay unions bless. I mean, that would be the ultimate,
1: that would, that would be the coup d'etat, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, I guess the question was also raised at the Amazonian synod by a bishop, um, who was sent to the Amazon to work. Um, and he was, bragging about also it was the same I forget his name but he was bragging about having never baptized anybody in over 20 years oh yeah he was so proud of the fact yeah and it, he was, it was walking a, around Rome holding, it was a, holding a woman's hand
0: there was a point of ecumenism for him He was like oh I, do you see like he I don't I don't impose my dogmatic beliefs on these indigenous people I respect them so much that I refuse to baptize them I'm like that's that's a sin against
1: charity yeah He's like, what is he a bishop for then? Like, what what was he ordained, consecrated to do? Yeah, it's like, just what are you nice? even
0: doing down there? It, maybe he's on Twitch as well. He's probably on Twitch with the e priests that are on Twitter all the time, that that, that love the lockdown. They're like, well, uh, Karen, Karen, and Susan aren't bothering me during the lockdown because they're scared. They're, they're the first ones that are scared <laughs> about the pandemic. Okay, um, I want to I want to dive into a little bit just to just to give people some sense of the fact that there are married priests running around and that it's more normal than you may think, or it ha- at least it's, it's more um, numerous than you may think. But I also sort of want to drive deeper into your personal decisions. You, you've, you have made the decision to be celibate as a condition to your state in life. How difficult has this decision been for you and how betrayed will you feel when or if, hopefully never, but when this gets lifted for everybody else?
1: So do you want to start off with the married priest?
0: No, we'll skip that. We'll skip them for now. We'll punt that to the end. That's like bonus... Points. If you if you hang in for this entire podcast, then you get to know that there are married priests out there, and that it's okay. You don't have to be scandalized by it. It's just not the ideal, and there are sometimes temporary reasons why it needs to occur, and really interesting historical reasons why that happened too. But what about you, Brother Martin Navarro, Oblates of Saint Augustine?
1: Need hundred thousand. <laughs> need a hundred thousand. Need a place to live. Um, so I mentioned a little bit about my story beforehand. Um, when I was in college in Nashville, Tennessee, um, I was in Nashville, Tennessee when I was 18, 19 and 20. I left when I was just turned 21. Um, I was a professional guitar player playing in, um, the studios there on, on music row, uh, for professional songwriters, um, met a girl, whatever fell in love. Um, but I also had a strong reversion de- during this time as well. Um, in particular, I guess, um, the girlfriend that I had play, played a role in my spiritual life insofar as um, my, spirit, my spiritual life was helping me to become a mature young man. I was uh, trying to take on responsibility. I was taking my spiritual life seriously. I was going to mass daily. Um, I was praying the rosary daily, discovered the liturgy of the hours, all that kind of stuff, and I, I started moving away from my, uh, my rock and roll lifestyle, so to speak, and, and starting to take the idea of settling down more seriously. So I thought, you know, vocation, um, married life is most likely it. Um, so let's go that route. But the more I, I started doing holy hours, the more I, I, the more I went to mass, the, the more I learned about what the mass is, the holy sacrifice, and what's being offered the altar, myself, through the priest, through Jesus Christ, ultimately to God, um, who, it, who it is I receive in the Holy Eucharist, the fact that uh, our Lord is reserved in the tabernacle um, for me to go and visit him every single day. Um, These things were eye-opening to me and were answering the the questions that I had that arose from my existential crisis. Who am I? Why do I exist? Why did God create me? Um, Mm -hmm. And I was looking in particular for these answers. Um, And so I started visiting our Lord every single day um, because I figured, you know, if, if, if the Eucharist really truly is our our Lord, um, it makes sense to at least carve out five minutes of my day to, to spend some time with him at, at the student center there at Vanderbilt university, they have a, a 24 seven chapel with a little key code on it for the students. And so, you know, I, I got the key code from the priest. Um, and so I, I, I spent what little time I could with our Lord. I had no idea how to pray. Nobody taught me how to pray growing up. Um, and so I remember, um, sitting there for the first time for five minutes and saying, Lord, I don't know how to pray. I don't know. No, Nobody in my life has taught me to pray. There's nobody in my life to teach me how to pray. There's nobody in my life that I can go to and ask. Um, so if you, if you want me to pray a certain way, then you have to teach me by some miraculous way. But if you're not, this is what I have to give. I have, I have five minutes. Um, so I gave you me for these five minutes. Um, and so I sat there for five minutes and just gave, gave our Lord me. Um, and he accepted and that, obviously. <laughs> he, he, he took accept, it. <laughs> he obviously accepted that. Um, because the next day I came back and I spent seven. Um, <laughs> and then the next day I came back and I spent ten. And the next day I came back, I spent twenty. And the next day I came back, I spent thirty. And thirty eventually grew into an hour. Um, and I started spending an hour every day with our Lord. So much so that um, because I had a job, I was a guitar player. I had rehearsals, all that kind of stuff. I had school as well. Sometimes the only time I could spend an hour with our Lord was at five a.m., and so I would go uh, to the Frasati house or whatever at five a.m. and uh, and spend an hour with our Lord before before my day got started before I had to go to mass. Um, but there came a, a time when I was dating this girl where I realized that uh, it was in particular it was when I was before the blessed sacrament adoration that I realized I was already in love with someone. Um, and and the, my relationship with this with this girl, future marriage, all that kind of stuff was just a means for me to prove my love. Uh, for, for our Lord. It was ultimately him who I was loving by being faithful to my vocation in the married state. Um, but I had to ask myself the serious question. Um, why don't I just love him directly? W- what about the consecrated life? Because I never asked myself that question before. What about the consecrated life? Um, so, of course, I was honest with this girl, all this kind of stuff, when we d- decided to spend some time apart so I c- I could answer this question for myself because it was hard to move forward in our relationship if I didn't have this question answered. Um, but, I mean, the, the more I prayed, the more I fell in love. And in particular, I remember there was one day I was at Kroger's. I was shopping. I was I was getting some vegetables. Um, I think I mentioned this before on one of your other podcasts uh, where it just hit me. I mean, poverty, chastity, and obedience. I'm poor because if our Lord were to walk right in front of me and, he's, and he would point to me and say, follow me, there's, there are certain requirements. Like I would have to – I could only take what I could physically take on my back, and that means very little things being detached um, from having certain material possessions, simply by the, the natural consequences of following him, chastity. Well, because I'm following him, I have I have uh, no ability to settle down and get married and 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 acquire all the temporal requirements to, to, to raise a family to have a family. Um, and then obedience. Well, I follow him wherever he he decides I go. I don't get to decide. And so all these these three things, poverty, chastity, and obedience, became me became I became aware that they're they're means by for me to prove and to live out my love for our Lord. Um, and so for me particularly, what is, cel- what is celibacy? Celibacy is love. Um, and it, it's me giving my body complete and totally entire, my heart, my body, my, my mind, everything that I have, um, back to he who gave it to me. Mm. It, it, it's a return. Um, and so that, that's what it means to me. Every, every, every time I think about chastity, I think about a prize that I get to show our Lord, some sort of pearl and saying, Lord, you gave, you gave me freedom, the most precious thing that I have. And here I give, I give it back directly to you. Um, so in the context of people always questioning celibacy, I, I don't understand. Do you suppose,
0: I mean, is this a fair comment? the end of a summarization, you say to our Lord out of superfluidity of love, this is my body. Give yourself mm-hmm. back to him. Is it fair, then, to say that the opponents of priestly celibacy, that the clerics who are actively working against priestly celibacy, that it's very likely that they are operating out of a dearth for love for our blessed Lord? A dearth? Like a lack, a lack of love. Like, I mean, if, if, cause if, if you are head over heels for our Lord... Yeah. Five minutes, seven minutes, nine minutes, hour, two hours, can't do anything else, quit my band, break up with my girlfriend. The heart of love is sacrifice. Love is a decision. You made all those decisions, you sacrificed all those things, and you're sacrificing, you know, marital relations. Mm -hmm. So people who are not willing to sacrifice, are just not willing to love, according to that logic, you know. And so I'm just looking right. at it. I'm just I'm looking at the logic of it and just saying, okay, they must not love our Lord.
1: Is that simplistic? I think it's honest. Um, it's it's certainly valid a valid question. Um, the people in particular that are that are asking these questions right now, especially in the Vatican. Um, I mean, I think something recently came out with like. Cardinal Bichu and uh, the head of Cardinal and the head of the secretary of state um, with all these financial scandal and corruption as well. These
0: People, they're all villains. All these people are villains.
1: And, and, you know, uh, I'm holding next to me this, this book called by Archbishop Fulton Sheen called the priest is not his own. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a book that I use on all of my retreats, my yearly retreats, my eight day retreats. Um, because he goes through as, and explains kind of what is a priest in, in, in particular, the chapter in it about Judas. Um, and it kind of exp- him trying to explain wh- where where it began to go bad for Judas. You know, what happened? Ultimately, he lo- he lost faith and tr- trust in our Lord. Um, but there's one line in there that Fulton Shane really hits me with, um, that he wants to ask every priest that, you know, gets caught off the grounds here or whatever and, you know, violating his vows, all that kind of stuff. And the one question is, when did you stop praying? When did you stop praying? Mm. Because ultimately, prayer is, is a lifting of the heart in love to God. And so when you, when you stop finding pleasure, sweetness in having a loving conversation with the person that you're in love with your spouse, well, eventually you, you commit all these other crimes um, as, a, as a consequence. Um, so that, that's always the, 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 um, uh, the, the first step of their downfall is when you do stop praying, which for me also goes into why I wanted to pray the traditional bravery. Uh, the traditional bravery takes over nearly two hours um, to pray entirely. The, the new new form, the new liturgy of the hours takes about 45 minutes. And so if the question that leads to a Judas is when did you start praying? It's like, well, if the church cut out over half my prayer, so <laughs> um, is it really my fault? You know, but that, that's what that's why it's like I would tell a bishop who who would insult me. You know, oh, you want, you can't, I want to ordain you a priest because you want to pray the traditional breviary." It's like, well, yeah, that's because I always want to stay in love. I want to make sure. Um, that I never betray our Lord in the way Judas did. Mm-hmm.
0: And how we pray is how we worship, I mean. Exactly. How we pray is what we believe. All right, so that's, okay, so that's celibacy, both at a kind of a macro level, the history of it, and at a micro level. The other things that are, of course, on the jobbing blog are ecumenism, which is mm-hmm. really just, I mean, that is, that is just one of the false idols of the false church, in my opinion
1: it's not really real theological. It's, it's hanging out with who you like and, and dissing who you don't like. I mean, there's there's ecumenism for the Lutherans. Um, they can receive Holy Communion in your churches or whatever. But there's no ecumenism for the Radtrads, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's complete and total nonsense.
0: If you're too conservative, then you're rigid, and Robert Barron needs to have news conferences about how awful you are. Uh, <laughs> but if you are a... Uh, If you're an apostate, or a heretic, or a schismatic, or even if you're an obstinate Jew, (laughs) nothing needs to. You don't need to change your life, really. I mean, the Catholic Church is just a privileged path. Exactly, it's just privileged. Um, It's so. But unless you're a rat rat, in which case you're you're damned. (laughs) <laughs> Systemic. <laughs> so, um, man, it, and everything is on the table constantly. Okay, so these people are going to meet in in the Vatican and we'll be talking about clericalism. They'll be talking about the new evangelization, which, which I guess is kind of stale. I mean, wasn't it new like a generation ago? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, mean I don't know.
1: And uh, now we're selling churches, destroying churches, and uh,
0: are we talking yeah. about? Priestly celibacy, they might have a footnote about, you know, same-sex unions, same-sex attraction, the normalization of SSA, which is what all of the Jesuits and practically all of the legionnaires are uh, attempting to normalize. Can any good come out of this? I mean, do you, can you foresee any possible good? You've, you've mentioned Bechu, Parolin. I mentioned Ulet, <laughs> Francesco.
1: Francesco. I mean, um, <laughs> I think we've mentioned this quite a bit on the rundown in particular to Archbishop Vigano is that when you release a statement every week, it lo- it loses the punch. Um, I think, in particular, the, the Holy See is is, I mean, they release something every week, and I think now I think everyone's just exhausted. I mean, it, it's 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 not possible to keep up with your daily life, to keep up with your spiritual life, and at the same time listen to all the politics coming out of Rome, um, because it's 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 constant. It's a constant stream, co- constant reporting, um, and of course, when you speak too much, eventually you run out of things to say. Things things that are actually edifying. And I think that's in particular that's what's happened with the Holy See. I mean, when you release encyclicals that are some 400 500 pages, I mean, come on. Um, I, th- I think really that they're uh, they, they, I mean, for me in particular that they've they've certainly burned me out uh, And paying attention to paying attention to them as if you know. You know hey, I remember when when uh, Lumen Fide, the, the Light of Faith, came out. It was the last encyclical uh, Pope Benedict wrote. I was kind of on on the edge of my seat. I was I was waiting waiting for that thing to come out when waiting, waiting for drop for it to drop so to speak. Um, because i knew that somehow it would be edifying uh, i have not experienced that the last what was it 8 9 years now um, being on the edge of my seat knowing that because know, knowing that something is going to be really spiritually edifying for me um, i think we we've, we've lost that that energy that sense um, that joy really of of receiving something that, that the holy father the vicar of christ wants to speak to us his flock um, it, it it's not there anymore
0: Yeah, I mean, I know of, I know about a traditional priest who was part of a traditional order, a monastic community, and this is ostensibly, according to outsiders' points of view, according to to a lot of people who are looking at it, especially lay people from an outsider's perspective they ostensibly it is a, a traditionalist community but i don't know when you dig into what's going on in there with the liturgy and the calendar and the books that are sold in their bookstore and some of the things they're doing mm-hmm. with their day you're just kind of like ooh that's a little questionable but this particular monastic community would have readings like many monastic communities do during supper so you're sitting at table mm-hmm. somebody's reading And they selected Tutti Fruity as the reading. <laughs> they selected Tutti Fruity as the spiritual reading. And this one priest is like, I, I can't I can't do this. So can I just like forego my meal? Can I just sit <laughs> in my room? Can I just pray quietly in my room? Because that would be much more productive. I mean that's a temporary workaround, but ultimately it was not a long term fit and that Particular priest is now uh, gone. So, I mean, yeah. I, when you talk about the fact that we are supposed to be edified by magis, you know, so-called magisterial documents that come out of the Eternal City, and then we read them, and it's nothing but disappointment after disappointment. It's it's a really sad deal, but let's uh let's talk about the fact that in um in cases of extreme emergency in the history of the church, like uh behind the iron curtain for example, it has been sometimes customary even in the Latin rite to ordain married men. This is I think pretty interesting and a lot of people may not know this and it was much more common in um especially in the last century, than most people would think.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I know in, well, in particular, well, behind the Iron Curtain also means uh, Eastern Europe, and in particular, I mean, they had the Byzantine rites over there, and so they weren't, but there's also Latin rites kind of mixed in as well. Um, okay. So for them, it's it's something completely different. But what I want to share behind the Iron Curtain is particularly regarding the, the Latin rites. Um that, I mean, the communists were, were literally killing priests. And so if, if, if the lay people wanted sacraments, um, they had to find a way to hide them. Well, when, w- when there's 30, 40-year-old men who are single um, and the communists are out there looking for, for priests, but the chance that that single man is a priest is, is, is probably pretty good. Um, so one of the things that they did behind the Iron Curtain that JP2 later resolved um, was that they permitted married men to be not only ordained priests, but also consecrated bishops. Why? Because the communists would never suspect. Um, they were obviously light clothes, all that kind of stuff, because ordaining a, a married man does not invalidate holy orders, and holy orders are efficacious, ex opere operantis, um, regardless of, of whether someone is celibate or not. But also behind the Iron Curtain as well. I mean, the Orthodox ordained priests for the Catholics, and the Catholic bishops ordained priests for the Orthodox. In in cases of extreme emergency, holy orders are holy orders. It doesn't matter um, what fake jurisdiction the people belong to, so to speak, because, I mean, technically our Lord didn't found an Orthodox church. He founded one church. Um, and so behind the Iron Curtain, for sure, they had married bishops. And J.P. two later on, um, you know, once the Iron Curtain was lifted or whatever else, he invited all these bishops to the Vatican or whatever, thanked these men for their service, and then politely asked them all to resign. And they all did. Right. Why? Because they, they were because- only consecrated because they understood
0: they understood that they had only taken the orders and received the consecrations as a manner of um passing down the lineage until such a time as the church could operate in, in the more in a more fullness of its uh liberty and exaltation
1: absolutely yeah
0: do you foresee a time in the United States where things could get so bad for catholics that we that that were driven so far underground that you know something like that could happen in this country?
1: I mean the progressive Marxist ideologies are are certainly reigning, they're beginning to reign here again, so it very well could be. Um I know in regards to, to married priests in, in the Roman in the Roman Catholic Church, um Pope Benedict the sixteenth to welcome um more Anglican converts back to the church, he he permitted that um them, also some Lutherans, um those that were ministers, priests or whatever. In in their uh, heretical churches, when they came home to Rome, um, for them to ask for permission to be ordained priests, although they were married, and, and the permission was was granted. Um, and usually, I mean, ironically, so to speak, uh, some bishops were excited about this because they thought that this was like the beginning of the married priesthood. And they were excited; they were willing to ordain married men, but they didn't realize that these these married men who were pastors of other denominations were coming home to Rome. Precisely because they they realize that Catholicism is true, and they actually believe all the dogmas of the faith, and so these married men actually became some of the most conservative and traditional priests. Um, really, that we have. Um, I mean, a lot of the Anglicans and even on Twitter are, are pretty solid. Um, I was my my church history professor um, when I was studying philosophy. I was a married priest. Priest, and I mean, he he went through a lot of. Uh, he had a lot of grief from the college that uh, he was teaching at precisely because he was so conservative. He offered the traditional Latin mass and everything. Why? Because he knows the Catholicism is true. He grew up Lutheran or whatever, became a Lutheran minister later on, discovered the faith and, um, converted as he ought to have, um, some, some priests would say, oh no, no, stay there, stay there, stay in your denomination and love God from there. No, he converted, um, and asked to be a priest and, you know, he's a priest now. So, Mm um, it's definitely possible. It's not so weird. Um, as we said, I mean, the sacraments are still valid, all that kind of stuff. And then it's, it's an exception to the rule and it's not the rule itself. As the saying goes, exceptions prove the rule. Um, right. but, uh, it's, it's definitely, it doesn't help to become the normal or become the, the main thing. And that's exactly what these it's modernists the, want to we're, do. We're they
0: they want the exception to be the rule. And then, I mean, that sort of invalidates the rule, you know?
1: Exactly. Do I see a place for this in the future? Possibly. At the same time, I've I've seen through other uh, smaller, um, smaller groups, independent groups that have married priests. That it's kind of um, it's not it, the it ideal, right?
0: It's, it's not like I mean, it's not the ideal because a) you're not radically available, mm-hmm. can't serve two masters, probably going to neglect your family because the job of a priest is pretty demanding. I mean, right?
1: Yeah, and also in the East, there's a certain way of doing it. Is in the in the Eastern churches. Young men go to seminary, study up just before the diaconate, leave the seminary, find a wife, get married, then go back and be ordained. So that they're 100% formed, they have that radical availability to study, to be well-formed. Then they go leave, find a wife, then come back, get married, so on and so forth. Whereas in the independent kind of traditional movement, so to speak, there are some that ordain married men out of necessity – um, but they ordain people that are already married. And so the formation sometimes is lacking because they don't have the, the ability to study as well as one would, um, living full time in a seminary. Right. Um, because so, you're
0: providing for a family and you're like taking, you know, nights and weekend school. It's like going to law school at night. It's pretty tough. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, and so there's, there's some major drawbacks in, in doing stuff like that. Um, at the same time, it's, it's not so weird, but at the same time, it's, it's certainly far from the ideal. Um, So we just need young celibate men to take the risk. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: While I have you, Brother Martin Navarro, Oblates of St. Augustine, traditional Augustinian community in the United States, looking to found it, many, many interested potential brothers around the country, dozens of young men who just want to pray the traditional breviary, who just want to live a monastic life in the spirit of St. Augustine. I want to ask you a little bit about your thoughts since we're predicting the future right now. It doesn't really matter where you fall on the spectrum of whether or not we are indeed, in a true state of emergency now or what your, what your red line is. I know a very, very famous and well-regarded traditional priest who actually does not believe that we're in a state of emergency right now, but that we would be under certain conditions which I could foresee as being on the immediate horizon, speaking of horizons. And one of those conditions is that Summorum Pontificum would be overturned or abrogated in some way, and that the Vatican would continue its 1970s, 1980s, 1990s practice of overtly controlling and suppressing the traditional Latin Mass around the world. In this particular priest's mind, that would be the red line, that would be the signal that we are truly indeed in a state of emergency. Okay, that all being said is the preamble. I'm of the mind that that is for sure going to happen within the next five years. That I think that SP is gone and I think that the two or three so-called approved Latin Mass Orders are then going to gravely suffer under some sort of persecution and be required to make compromises, which you and I would personally not be willing to make. And that's going to create what I keep calling the time for deciding or the decision point. We, we reference this on the rundown sometimes, but in the podcast format, we have longer time to draw these ideas out and, um, and really explain them. So could you take the next couple minutes and just explain what you think the scenario might be whether uh, whether or not we're already in a state of emergency or if we're or if that would be the red line for you as well along with you know Father X who <laughs> is very famous and everyone knows who he is um, or um, and then how you would respond to it and and whether or not you think that like my foretelling of the next five years is um,
1: is reasonable and valid well, I would say to Father X, the suppression of Simortum Pontificum has already happened. It's already happened. Simortum Pontificum is already suppressed. Why do I say this? Because it's not official, not from Rome. The bishops absolutely have everything in their power to bully and to punish any priest who exercises their rights under Simortum Pontificum. And I've seen it with my own eyes. Father starts uh, a traditional Latin mass in his parish— the bishop hears about it immediately the bishop transfers that priest to another parish gives him a warning tells him um this isn't the, in, in a private meeting this isn't the kind of priest i want you to be this is, you're not the kind of priest i need in my diocese um if you keep this keep this up i'll have to take other measures whatever threatens him makes him feel down makes him feel like he's he's not living up to who his, his spiritual father wants him to be um but he's, he still longs for the traditional faith you know the uh, uh, that not beige Catholicism that Bishop Barron supposedly speaks of. Um, but the more traditional he, he is, if he starts up another Latin mass there, he gets not only transferred to another parish, but maybe even suspended um, for psychological reasons, sent to St. Luke's. I think Father Z also uh, put a blog post about how there are a lot of conservative young men, and priests at St. Luke's, this you know psychological ward out in Maryland uh, that the USCCB uses. Uh, and they all have that in common, that they're all basically conservatives or or, or trad leaning, um, that they were either wanting to celebrate Mass Audio Orientum, wanting to incorporate some some Latin in, in in the in the Mass, or offering the traditional Latin Mass. And so there's there's ways that bishops can legally bully and punish and forbid the traditional Latin Mass from being open in their diocese. The way it's supposed to work under someone Pontificum is that if, if a if a pastor has some parishioners who want the Mass, he can just put it on the bulletin, on the schedule, and just do it, and that's it. But no, no pastor would, have, would admit today that freedom. Some pastors I know that do regularly offer the traditional Latin Mass can't put it in the bulletin because the, they don't want their bishop finding out. So Mono Pontificum is already suppressed. The line has already been crossed. Not only that, but I've been in two communities already where I've been um, punished um, and bullied precisely because I prayed the traditional briefing in my own bedroom. With, with nobody else, in my own bedroom, I couldn't even do it there, you know, silently. But, but the fact that I did it now, they tell, me, they tell me, Brother Martin, you either have to stop this or leave. Okay, so someone in is was already suppressed, it's
0: already gone. And when it's okay, so it's effectively oppress or suppress, and that sounds true to be honest, because and. It, either of the major two traditionalist orders can put a priest into a diocese but only at the behest of the ordinary there and that ordinary can suppress oppress depress that community for any reason whatsoever and um and you're right so effectively effectively the sort of mainstream Vatican II novus ordo modernist ecumenist americanist compromise establishment church can can have their way with these communities you know you can you can put them in the worst part of town you can require that they have the worst mass times ever you can put them into shared use which is the worst you know whereas it's like mm-hmm. mostly Nova Sordo, but then you know on sundays you get your little time slot at three in the afternoon when it's hot and nap time mm-hmm. for large <laughs> families with little children um right. then you can have your you can have your smells and bells, but you can't offer commute uh you can't offer um confession beforehand or after because things are just so busy in this parish. This is happening in San Antonio, this is happening in Chicago and other places. I hear horror stories. So you're right, effectively it is sort of already suppressed. This the letter of the law as laid out in some morum pontificum, which all it does is acknowledge the fact that no bishop has the right to suppress the traditional Latin mass, um, that's already abrogated. Right. But when they move to formally codify this this philosophy, when they move to say, okay, you know what? We really don't like you guys. They're doing it in France. They're doing it in Germany, other parts of Europe. And... Um, you know, guys like Supic, which are becoming increasingly more and more powerful in the universal church, uh, would love nothing more than to destroy the fastest growing segment of the church, which directly mm-hmm. threatens their ideology. When that happens, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, I mean, because this is, I think this is something that we're all going to live through. And I, I think it's only a fair question. And I, I don't mean to press. I don't want to put you on the spot, but so that people who are out there, lay men, lay women, mothers and fathers of families, trying to do their best with their children, raise them in the traditional faith, find the best mass that they can get to. When they start to see that the diocesan indults are the first to go, and then the hammer starts to drop on the other orders, even more so than it already has dropped, to your point, which I think is a very valid and astute point. What is that going to look like?
1: I think, first, much is going to stay the same. When Simodum Pontificum is suppressed, the bishops of local dioceses still can grant the permission for certain priests to offer the traditional Latin Mass. That's what Simona Pacificum did. It took that right away from the bishop um, and gave it strictly to the to the Pope and and to the priest. Um, but what this does is it gives it back to the bishop, and so the bishop can say, "Okay, we've already have an indult mass in a certain city. It's a certain size already. people are going, We'll leave that there. We won't touch it because of course there's there's money in, in the conservative areas of the church as well, so you don't want to you know upset too many people too quickly. Um, so we'll leave that there. And we just won't grow it anymore. Any other priest who wants to start doing it, the answer is already no. The needs are sufficiently provided for. You can put quotations around that, copy paste, whatever, because that's usually what they say. The needs are sufficiently provided for. Um, and so it, it'll be something that that's a little bit more gradual. Um, but what does it look like for the future? Because, of course, when you have young men with vocations, I mean, I don't want to speak negatively about other communities, but... Some of them are, I don't think, are interested in opening up a second seminary or open or creating a bigger seminary to to accommodate the the, the growing number of vocations. Um, and then also, there's no place to put these vocations because, as you mentioned earlier, Mike, um, these communities like the FSSP Institute of Christ the King, they can only go to dioceses when they're when they're invited by a bishop. And so, if a, if a bishop doesn't want to invite them, they have nowhere to put priests, and so the only thing they do is stack them up at the parishes that they already have. Put four, five, six, seven, all in one church, and in one says that's fine. But the Latin Mass doesn't grow. Uh, no mass, new mass times are added because you only have so many parishioners, um, and so you just get a just a kind of a it's a bottleneck, so to speak. Where they all just get funneled into certain areas. Um, new religious communities can't open. All you have are the ones that already exist, and they're mostly contemplative because bishops don't want. Um, traditionalists online preaching the truth to the masses. They, uh, they want them quiet, stuck in a cell um, to not cause any trouble. And so f- for those with a religious vocation, all they have is, is option are, are contempl- contemplative communities, whether that be Clear Creek Monastery in Oklahoma or whether that be this new uh, you know, f- what was it? fraternity of the Most Holy Redeemer up coming out in, in Montana or anybody else. It's, it's always contemplatives. And uh, this common-like community um, in Pennsylvania Contemplative as well. Um, it's one of the reasons why I'm wanting to make the Oblates of Saint Augustine more apostolic. Uh, why I'm here online on this podcast, but particularly because uh, the truth needs to be preached, needs to be taught. Uh, the title of community is obviously good. If you have a contemplative vocation, by all means, go. Um, but that's not everybody's vocation, um, and there's there's no really mendicant or or apostolic community that's also traditional, mm-hmm. but not exclusively priests like the Fraternity of Saint Peter or the Institute of Christ the King, mm-hmm. uh, for young men with vocations to go to. Um, but at the same time, we're at the mercy of, of a bishop uh, willing to erect us and stuff, so um do you think uh, uh,
0: just to not admire the problem and sta you know uh, I think a lot of commentators are really good at standing back and admiring the problem, really not offering a practical solution. Mm-hmm. There may not be a very good short term practical solution to the fact that we're most likely entering. What even Father X would define as a you know state of emergency right mm-hmm. if you don't believe that we're in a state of emergency, we'll definitely will be one in one within the next five years, possibly sooner, perhaps the day after Pope Benedict dies, you know i mean it could be it could be lightning fast, but at at risk of you know kind of sounding. I don't know, like other podcasts that are behind paywalls, let's say, you know, that are like pretty rad and pretty trad and, you know, almost borderline seti vicantis and whatever, which I am not and everyone knows I'm not. But there are guys out there that have been talking about the end times now for like 10 years and people have been laughing and jeering and saying, oh, okay, yeah, whatever, yeah, the antichrist, whatever. And I don't want to go down that road necessarily right now, but only to make the point that when we cross this Rubicon, it's really, I think, the only solution is prayer, fasting, and abstinence because it will require a miraculous intervention by Almighty God to right this ship. We're so off course that only, you know, Our Lady can come down and and pick the ship up in her immaculate hands and and move it and gently set it down because uh we're so off course that like you know a little wind correction and changing the sails at this point not
1: going to get us there. I mean, yeah. is that a fair st- is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um but also we've seen little episodes of this also in church history. Um I mean, the story of Saint Francis of Assisi, when uh, when he found himself in a in a rundown church and he heard uh, our Lord's voice calling to him from from the San Damiano cross, uh, Francis, go re- rebuild my church as you see it's lying in ruins. Um, we know the story. He looked around at the literally the church and rolls around him and he started putting stone on stone, as if that's what he understood our Lord to mean. But obviously our Lord meant the actual church, not just the the physical building. Um, so what is, so what what was Saint Francis's uh, solution. What, what, what did he realize our Lord was telling him to do? Go become a bishop, so then remake all the laws and enforce enforce good laws. To become pope, to run to run for pope, because you can run for pope. Um, is is that what Saint Francis's solution was? No, it was to found a religious community to to uh, get a bunch of guys together and say, guys, let's just be saints. Let's do this. This is, this is going to take hard work. This is going to take all of us. It's going to take all of our efforts to encourage each other. Uh, to help each other out, let's become saints. The church needs saints. That's how you rebuild, rebuild the church. You become saints. Mm. Um, so as you said, uh, you know, prayer, fasting, all giving. This is obviously the uh, what the church recommends as as part of uh, becoming saints. But like, I mean, it's we're at the moment where the rubber has to meet the road. We we, we got to do it. We got to give everything. Um, which is another reason why I found a religious community because what do I can I can complain all day long? I can admire the problem. Like I can say the church screwed me over here. The church screwed me over there. And I could have a chip on my shoulder for the rest of my life, um, or whatever else. Or, or I could, I could do what Canada love uh allows me to do, is get a, a group of guys together who want to pray the traditional breviary, who want to pray the traditional Latin mass. And say, guys, let's become saints. Um, and so that's what that's what <laughs> that's my response. More more so than a commentator who admires a problem, I, I want to found a religious community because I think. I have a better shot at writing uh, uh, the course of the ship, so to speak, than, than just commentating all the time. So,
0: I would beg our listeners, as we uh, close out this really important podcast, and I'm grateful for you uh, jumping on here, Brother Martin Navarro with the Oblates of St. Augustine. I would beg our listeners to really just objectively look at the problem, look at the history of the church, And see that it is true that almost every time the church went through various aspects of its passion, which we're no doubt in a passion right now, that she was saved by the monastic communities. And here we have a young man who is founding a monastic community which may very well be, we don't know, may very well be precisely the instrument, the tool that God seeks to use to purify the church and to preserve her from uh, the pains of this present chastisement. If you are listening right now to the Restoring the Faith podcast, Yes, hit the subscribe. Yes, consider becoming a patron. Do all those things. But most importantly, share this podcast with somebody who will be touched by the story of Brother Martin Navarro, which isn't even fully told in this podcast, but at least you can get a sense for his love of our Lord. And somebody who may want to contribute to the founding of a permanent community of young men. A community that will grow up to 15, maybe more, grows more than that, they'll probably split into two, and then they'll replicate like cells of holiness (laughs) in the body of Christ. And um, consider giving a major gift. Don't tithe. Look, we have to tithe. We have to give 10% of our pre-tax income to the needs of Holy Mother Church. Doesn't mean you got to give it to the USCCB. These people are promoting the death vax, okay? Find traditional communities. If you can give $25,000 or $50,000, make a major gift. It's tax deductible. Go to com slash donate. Slash giving. Slash giving, sorry. And that can be the, the manner by which you make your annual pledge. To, the, to support and sustain the Holy Mother Church, which is the sixth precept of the church. Well, it's, it's the fifth because they deleted the uh, you know, <laughs> precept on marriage. But it's one of the six precepts of the church to provide for the needs of Holy Mother Church. We have to do this. This is an ecclesiastical law. It's binding. We must do it upon pain of mortal sin. Why would you give to your bishop? Why would you give to your priest? Even if you put your donations into the FSSP or the ICK, I hate to say it. But a lot of that's going to go to your local bishop, who's then going to give it to his ecumenical council. He's going to give it to the Jews. He's going to spend it on paying off abuse victims. I'm sorry. Okay, yes, if you want to give to the FSSP, give it straight to the headquarters or whatever. Or put it on a building fund. If you want to give to the ICK, sure, send it to Chicago. Make sure you do it right. All that stuff protect it from the grubby hands of your wicked bishop. If you want to do something really novel, if you want to do something awesome, if you want to do something for the church that's long-lasting, that is immediate, that's actionable, that's measurable. We're looking for a 25,000 or a $50,000 gift to the Oblates of St. Augustine. We've got to get this traditional community off the ground. We're going to build a Catholic village it's going to be awesome.
1: It's going to be awesome.
0: And um, and we need a major gift to get things going. We've got to get the land going. We've got to get the entitlements going. We're running out of time, but we're placing it in Our Lady's hands. So if you're listening to this podcast right now, uh, consider giving what you can. And OblatesofStAugustine.com slash giving. Thank you so much for listening. This is Restoring the Faith.